1: I'm Jr. Lowry. This is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free. So visit Pathwise.io online and join today. Today, my guest is Jim McCarthy. Jim has been a live entertainment pioneer and innovator for two decades. He is currently the co-founder and the CEO of Stellar.live, the only full-service live stream partner for professional live entertainment organizers. He's also the author of Beyond the Back Row, The Breakthrough Potential of Digital Live Entertainment and Arts, and an adjunct professor of entrepreneurship at the University of Southern California. Jim started his career teaching English to Japanese students before returning to the US. He worked for Noah's Bagels for several years and then dove into the dot-com boom with GeoCities, which was ultimately acquired by Yahoo. Not long after that, he co-founded and ran Gold Star Events, a leader in the sale of excess live event ticket inventory. When the pandemic shut down the live entertainment industry, he started Stellar to help generate real revenue with quality virtual shows. Jim is also an active volunteer, having served as a board member over the years for Innovate Pasadena, Union Station Homeless Services, and the Pasadena Playhouse. He is a co-founder and organizer of TEDx Broadway. And an advisory committee member at Caltech. He earned his bachelor's degree from Harvard and his MBA from UCLA. He lives in Pasadena, California. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. So tell our audience about Stellar
2: Live and what you're up to these days. Sure. Stellar is a platform for professional show creators to be able to do online and hybrid shows, which has become a big thing and part of the really the future of live entertainment, whether you're talking about theater or music or performing arts in general. So, what inspired you to start Stellar during the pandemic? Well, the pandemic uh, largely was the inspiration. At the time, I was running a company that I co-founded called Gold Star, which many people will know, that sold tickets for many, many years to live events. And in March of 2020, our business came to a complete, and I mean complete, halt. And so over the few months after the pandemic, for various twists and turns and different reasons, greenlit this project to build the platform that we knew that people that we'd been working with for all these years in the professional live entertainment world that they would need in order to be able to adapt to the pandemic world and also to be able to do the online and hybrid stuff that we knew would happen when in person actually came back which that's where we are now
1: yeah and you, you talked in the book about just the the sort of early rough start of people in their sort of i think bathrobes and yeah. from their sofa in the early days of covid and how the online medium has matured since then, what have you seen happen over the last, I guess at this point, it's been two and a half years.
2: Well, yeah, a lot of robes in the early days. There was one that I saw where there was a comic, a fairly well-known comic who was doing a kind of a robe show. And she actually stopped and took a bite of her pizza, like during the show. And I just thought to myself, like, what is going on? You know, this is a professional comedian. What's happened is essentially the professional creators of live entertainment who have embraced this, have looked at it and said, how do we make a great show? Just really simply, how do we make a show that entertains and takes advantage of the online medium, right? So it's like anything, the screen that you're watching when you see an online show is a medium that has strengths and weaknesses. And so what they've done is they've been able to sort of take that and make it into something that's not just, I guess you could think of it as either you're pointing a camera at something that's happening for an in-person audience or you're actually filming it in a way that brings it to life for the at-home audience. And that's the direction that it's gone, you know, in different ways. It becomes very exciting when you think about what changes when you think of it that second way rather than the first way.
1: Yeah. I mean, I won't get your terminology right from what you described in the book, but just that I think you called it like ride-along online events and sort of then the maturation and thinking about them almost as like online first with an audience that's the live audience that's almost secondary in the scheme of things.
2: Yeah, it's interesting and it's not an unfamiliar model. Like if you think about the late night talk shows, for example, there's an audience there and they're having a great time and they're happy to be there, but the real audience is at home. The real audience is scattered all over the world. And one of the main differences in a sense is not so much that that's new, it's that now a lot broader of a group can do that. Uh, It would have been really hard to do that for yourself if you weren't a network before, but now it's much easier. Yeah, it's true. And In the interplay,
1: you talked about the late night shows. The interplay is, is important there. I think about John Oliver, who made a go of doing his show from the void, as he called yes. it, for what, the better part of maybe 12 months, maybe even longer. And there was something missing there when you didn't have the audience. Makes
2: you kind of sentimental about having a laugh track, right? Because you're like, something just doesn't yeah. sound too quiet. Yeah. It's true. It's- and a lot of stand-up comics who did shows without an audience had the same thing, you know, they're saying hilarious stuff, but nobody's responding. And you just feel like, where's the energy? And so, and that can be done. I mean, there's certain things that are less, I think comedy is probably the best example of, you really should have an audience. Like it makes a big difference, but some things it's not as important and some things it's, it doesn't seem like it's important, but the life and the energy that that audience brings is very real. And one of the things that we say as advice to people who are producing these events is you're using multiple cameras to do a good online event, you know, three or four cameras typically. And one of those cameras should occasionally be able to show us the audience, Mm. you know, because there's something about seeing the audience in some way during a live stream that just brings the whole thing to life. It's very interesting human psychology.
1: Yeah, And are you targeted more? It sounds like you're targeted mainly on professional producers of events, not the individual creator market, or are you targeting both groups?
2: We're targeting professionals, but I would say there's an ever more fuzzy line between those because, and especially in this format, because I think there are some content creators, so called content creators, that are going to be big innovators in this field because they don't have the barriers to moving into this in the way that some of the professional creators and genres do. You know, like they don't have the overhead of, a, of an enormous theater that they have to figure out how to. Film. So I think there are going to be individual creators who are real pioneers here and mm. can make an enormous success for themselves. So, this, so we are absolutely focused on professional creators, but there's this group of people here that I think can easily sort of join the ranks of very successful professional creators that maybe this is opening the door for them, you know, in yep. a way that we'd love to see more of that. Yeah. Do you have expectations about sort of a
1: minimum? level of production quality for events to be hosted on the platform or are you more open about it than that
2: we're pretty open i think it's if you don't want to do decent production quality you're probably going to just stream on youtube or something like that like it because our platform is about monetizing your shows it's about building an audience and building audience data and that's a lot of work to do there's no real point in going down that road if the quality isn't at a certain level. So. I think some people are gonna do, if they're sort of talking their thoughts into a camera, into a webcam, they're probably gonna stick with Facebook Live or Twitch or Twitter or something like that. But if they're serious about be, about building an audience, monetizing what they're doing and that kind of thing, they're gonna need some of the tools that we have, like ticketing, for example, subscriptions, memberships, all that kind of stuff.
1: So what's the state of the business itself right now? You started this back in the spring of 2020, or, yeah.
2: Yeah. As part of Goldstar at the time. So Goldstar was essentially the parent of Stellar. The Goldstar business really wasn't running. So the team that we had was devoted more or less to Stellar. And then through the course of 21, we sold Goldstar and spun Stellar off. So Stellar has been an independent company for less than a year now, since the beginning of this year. So the business that we have fully built out product, we have customers using the product every day, people buying tickets and watching shows every day. And uh, we're out there in the world trying to advocate and build a coalition and build a consensus around the importance of doing this in the live business. So we're very much up and running. Lots of shows happening all the time and lots of new customers coming on board and seeing what we can do to help pioneer this new medium. Yeah.
1: What are the latest trends you're seeing in terms of how the online or the hybrid professionally produced events are are changing?
2: That's a great question. I think the main trend is that some of the producers, especially people who maybe are coming to this with less of a background in the traditional forms are really instantly grasping the, this combination of digital and in-person. So having two different experiences that happen at the same time, one for the people that are in the room and another for people that are watching on screen. So really leaning into both strengths of both of those forums, right? Really, really using the digital tools to enhance the experience of people watching on the screen and really delivering a great in-person experience for the people who are in the room which if you think about it it's very it's fascinating right like you're having you're watching the same thing at its core but you're having two different experiences based on the medium that you're experiencing and it works very well both ways
1: yeah and it, it also helps you differentiate between the in-person and the online experience you yeah. can build an audience experience that's unique each way which you talk a lot about the importance or the I'll say the opportunity of online in terms of creating scalability for your event. Yeah. And if you add into just doing sort of, you know, multi-camera, very simple sort of online projection of things and go further into more of that separate kind of experience. And it just, I would imagine it opens up a whole new world in terms of what you
2: can do as a producer. It really does. I'll give you an example I can so there was a show that I thought was a beautiful example of this early this year. And the show happened in person at the Bourbon Room in Hollywood and also online. And there were a few thousand people watching it online while a couple of hundred people watched it in the room. Yeah. And big part of the plot revolved around a book, right? So a character's holding a book. And if you're sitting in the audience, you have characters holding a book and saying, blah, 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 blah. And the book was kind of key to the plot. So if you were watching on the screen, you were actually looking over the shoulder of the character into the book, mm-hmm. which if you think about it, it's really fascinating because you could see what was in the book. The characters reading it to the audience, and so you have this. You couldn't really do that in. Mean, you probably could find some way to do that, but the idea of the artistic choices opening up in that way for the online part is fascinating because it's barely been touched. You could literally be showing people a different experience if you wanted. You could concoct a story where the two different audiences came out with a completely different understanding of what happened. You can imagine such a thing. So it's kind of a fascinating, artistically, it's fascinating. Commercially, it's fascinating because, of course, you could have many, many, many times more people watching remotely than watching in person. And so it just really is something that we're just at the beginning, which makes it exciting. Yeah,
1: it is cool. And it's been fascinating to watch just how events have changed in the wake of the pandemic and how people are embracing online and hybrid and new and exciting ways. And I, you make the point in the book that it, this is the early days. I would completely agree with you as a non-expert in this space, that it just feels like there's a lot of innovation yet to come.
2: You're right. And you don't have to be involved in this. You can probably think back to other things that have gone through the same kind of curve, whether you're talking about the adoption of the internet itself. you know, I've been yeah. on the internet since 97 and watching people resist the idea of having a website you know, companies really who didn't believe they needed a website in the late 90s for various reasons. Like our customers, are, they just want to deal with us in person, or they're too old, or all these different reasons, or they're not technically savvy, blah, blah, blah. And well, all of that melted away over the next three to five years. And by the early 2000s, every company understood that it needed a website. It was not a an extra or a side thing. It was really just part of what they had to do. So there's multiple examples that you've probably been through thinking about How people adopted smartphones, for example, it took a long time, and it was one of these things where it was seen as this nerd tool, or it was seen as this unneeded thing, and then all of a sudden, everybody absolutely had to have one. Over time, it's like anything. There's people who see the future, and other people who just need to have it shown a little bit more before they get it. And so, we're still somewhere in that growth curve.
1: Yeah, it's interesting too. I think mobile is actually a good analog for what you're talking about in the event space because first you had websites that were built to be seen on a computer. They looked terrible on a phone, right? Then we fixed that problem. And then you had updated JavaScript that allowed you to, to build in a way that would be device sensitive. So that when it at least when you looked at it on the phone, it looked okay. And then you started having people think about, look, I, I have a desktop platform that does this. I have the mobile platform that does this. They don't have to be the same. And it's akin to what you're talking about with like your example of you know the people in the online audience seeing what's in the book and the people in the in-person audience having to have it read to them.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It, it is a great example, and the phase that we went through with mobile, where okay, okay, I'll admit mobile's important, but it's second to the desktop. You know, yeah. you probably remember that phase. Like, well, yeah, 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 it's an ancillary thing. It's a companion piece. It's whatever. And there wasn't too many years before it was like, oh no, I used to say like, who's Batman and who's Robin? For a long time, people thought the desktop was Batman and mobile was Robin, but it wasn't yeah. too many years after that where it's like. Okay, no, mobile is Batman. And again, as you said, that's a good point. Like you could do different things with them. So it always surprises people when those changes happen, even though they're usually long and coming. Yeah. So you
1: went to Harvard, you majored in English. I can't imagine that you were sitting at Harvard, envisioning yourself getting into the online event space. So how did you kind of get from graduation to the beginning of
2: Gold Star? That's a good question. I definitely couldn't have imagined myself in the online event space because the really The World Wide Web didn't exist when I graduated. Right. Right. You know, literally very hard to imagine. And that's one of the things that I always say is like, you just don't know. You can't plan as a young person. You can't plan too meticulously for your career because you really don't know what the world's going to offer when you're in your career years. You know, it's for me, it's literally true that I've spent my career working in in the web or the internet more broadly the whole time, and it barely existed. It was very much a computer science thing when I was in college. It existed, but as a computer science thing. I spent some years in Japan teaching English and learning Japanese. And I don't know, I mean, it was really quite an education on multiple levels. Mm -hmm. And I think I came back from Japan thinking like, hey, there's a, I really felt I was impressed by the fact that Japan had become this incredibly prosperous and healthy country over a pretty short period of time, because the power of, business in a way, right? Like I, that was the best I could express it at the time. Like people here are doing very well compared to their grandparents. And what was so cool about living in Japan in the nineties is Japan was a wealthy country, but you could see not too far back how different it was. It really was interesting to see that time, the older people, like people in their maybe sixties or older were much shorter than the younger people because they grew up with a different kind of nutrition and everything. Still, So somehow that sort of got me in the mindset that like, hey, I want to go back. When I go home, I want to go where innovative businesses are happening. So of course, I moved to California. And I found my way into a company called Noah's Bagels, which if you live in California or Oregon or Washington, you probably know Noah's. And that was a time when Noah's was the most interesting, fastest growing restaurant concept. And Noah himself was an incredible, awesome guy. I joined the company when it had 12 bakeries and we were about to add Hundred and fifty more. So I got to sort of just jump on that and learn a lot in a very short period of time over the next couple of years, and got a kind of education by fire in high growth businesses and customer service and all these things like all at once. Um, Things sort of changed there, and I left there, and I had started business school at UCLA in the fully employed program uh, during that. So that was a hard but fun to be in the. FEMBA and, and also working a demanding job. I left Noah's in the middle of FEMBA and really looked around, and this was 1997, I looked around and thought, I have a chance here to kind of pick an industry. And it was very early, but the internet, the World Wide Web had been created and people were using it. It was still pretty niche, but Amazon existed and a few other, eBay existed and a few things like that. And so I started thinking, well, there's this thing called e-commerce that no one's talking about yet that I think is fascinating and I want to get involved. So I did a bunch of research and I did I met everybody in the whole southern California internet world because that's where I live and got a job at GeoCities which some of you will some people will remember which was the first place that ever gave people free homepages, personal websites and tools to build them out. And it was enormous. It was one of the bi- it was I don't even know how to compare it to anything today but it was the biggest Consumer generated content site in the world at the time. And we had, I don't know, millions of people who had websites that they built on GeoCities. And so we had all these, I mean, like all over the world, you know, people were coming to GeoCities websites every day. And so we were trying to figure out how to add commerce onto that, which my first assignment at GeoCities was our brand new partnership with Amazon. So I got to work with Amazon in the days when there were like, yeah, I don't know, 200 people working there or something like that, very small. Yeah. They, we're all in one building in Seattle. Bezos had a desk that was really just a door. It was like a closet door <laughs> and some cinder blocks in there. That was just his desk it was the a door on some cinder blocks. So getting a kind of inside look at what they were doing was like, this is the blueprint for e-commerce then and now. And so I kind of got to fully absorb that in a very direct way because every day I would call my contact at Amazon and say, We want to do this, 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 and they'll go, no, we need this and this and this. And I was like, explain that to me, (laughs) you know, and they would. So yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, so I got a real good education in e-commerce over a short period of time. This is what I always say: like in your 20s, right? It's time to learn. You can worry more about making money in your 30s, but you have to, your career years of your I'm sure you'd agree. You have to use your career years of of your 20s to learn stuff right like yourself in the best place to learn and then you can leverage that a little bit later to to make some more money but then just was bought by yahoo in 1999 and i went through as a founding employee of another company that was a venture-based dot-com kind of thing that didn't work out very well and then a couple of the guys that were there with me and were my friends and commuting partners to that company we started gold star in 2002 so gold star through to stellar. And here I am.
1: Yeah. Bam. Fast forward. I'm going to take you yeah. back to days at Noah's. So what did yeah. you learn at Noah's that helped you in your later career days? Well,
2: let's start with Noah. Noah's a real guy. That sounds like it could be the kind of thing that's just a sort of Ronald McDonald, but Noah Alper was a real guy. He lived in Berkeley, California. And the first job I had at Noah's was I ran a store on Solano Avenue in Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And that happened to be Noah's neighborhood store. So I saw Noah almost every day and I would chat with him, you know, almost every day. And the thing about Noah is that he was a true mensch. We learned all the the different uh, Yiddish words in working there. And and it wasn't just that. At that time, Noah's was a kosher-keeping kitchen. If you were a kosher-keeping Jewish person, you could come to a Noah's at that time and rely on the fact that we were a kosher-keeping kitchen. So I learned all the, by no means Jewish, but sometimes I felt in those days as as though I was. We would close for eight days during Passover. We had to get all the leavened bread out of the store for those eight days, all these different things. More to the point, it was this whole idea, there was something higher than just the, I don't just the business, right? So Noah would talk about how that most of the customers that came in weren't kosher keeping, but there were a lot of people, even non-Jews, who thought that if we maintain this standard in terms of the dietary standards of kosher, Right. We must be serious about quality. And we actually really were. And There was a moment where, well, there, there were always moments where people would suggest things like, hey, maybe if you guys had turkey and cheese sandwiches, you'd sell more lunch, whatever. And it was like, well, we can't. That's just not going to work. And actually, that was a really interesting set of trade-offs. I learned a lot about culture because Noah's had a very strong culture. We were way ahead of the curve in terms of paying people for skill building and paying people a high starting wage. and we retained people at, I think, something like, well, the way that the quick serve food business works is incredibly high turnover. So, something like 150 to 200% turnover annually through crew, crew level higher. But at Noah's, that number was more like 50, which is still a lot, but compared a lot better to, it's a lot average, better yeah. turning over half your crew every year as opposed to turning over your average crew person twice in a year, right? So, that's just a huge difference. And part of that's just natural. You know, you have students and They come and they go and that kind of thing. But a part of it is what you pay them, how you take care of them, just how they're treated. And a culture that says like, look, without a committed group of people working on this who feel that there's a reciprocal relationship between them and the company they're working for, it doesn't work at all. There's so much to learn from that. And then the other thing that I learned was the rapid growth, the limits of rapid growth. So we opened at one point, we were opening one Noah's every week. And this wasn't on a base of thousands of stores. It was on the base of 50 or 60, let's say, opening a store every week. And you could think of it as like an organization has a tensile strength, right? More tension on the thing. And if you pull too hard, it snaps. And that's kind of what happened at Noah's was that the strains of growth ultimately broke the organization's capacity to do it. There was a growth imperative that got decoupled from a lot of the fundamentals in the business And it broke the thing that made Noah's really special. And this was after Noah had left. So note that. Right. Right. But um, the decision about someone's analysis that said, well, okay, how about meat and cheese sandwiches came up again some years later after after Noah was gone. And the decision was like, yep, absolutely. The calculation was, hey, 7% of the customers are kosher keeping, more than 7% from having these other kinds of sandwiches. Bada bing, bada boom, the spreadsheet says, let's do it. If you don't know and you have no experience of this kind of thing happening, it's pretty hard to argue against that logic in business. But it was the single most destructive decision that that company ever made because all those years of talking about answering to a higher authority, mm, right? So you demoralize your best customers, you demoralize your employees, and you no longer have a claim to that, right? So it was really a punch in the gut to everyone. And some of the, some of the stores that were in neighborhoods that did tend to have more kosher keeping customers or even halal keeping customers for that matter, they plummeted in sales. And so that simple math of like plus 7%, but over here it's plus, you know, minus seven, but we get 11 over here. Like it's the kind of thing that exists in a spreadsheet and in a concept. It doesn't necessarily exist in reality. yeah I, I think through that experience, I learned a lot about what it takes to provide structures that lead to quality under high stress and high growth Mm -hmm. and also limits of that, right? There is a limit to that. And I think if you think about everything we've seen, you see that again and again, right? Mm -hmm. Just the where it just goes like, yeah, okay, that's about to break. And then it does, right? Like whatever you want to pick. There's plenty of examples of it, yeah, that broke. Trying to think of a recent example of this where it's just like, well, that's not shocking, but you know, there's plenty of examples of this where- It just doesn't seem sustainable and then it isn't. And so there's limits. I think limits is a good lesson. There's limits in general. So then you go on to GeoCities. How did that kind of (laughs) add to the base of learning that you got in your early career days? Well, I thought I knew what high growth was before I got to GeoCities, but I did not. This is one where this was like internet scale growth, where you didn't have to build a new store to get more customers. They just showed up in greater numbers. And the imperative to translate that traffic into into revenue and that kind of thing was just mad because we were in a business model that no one knew. If you're working in a chain of bakeries, you know how you make money. You sell baked goods and drinks and things, right? But in this, it was like, well, okay, we got to invent how we make money in this world. And it was just a daily mystery of like, okay, well, let's do this. you know, And like, oh, that didn't work at all. Okay, let's do this. Oh, wow, that worked. Okay, great. Let's do more of that. And it was just sort of frenetic pace of trying to figure out what the internet could do commercially like it, in large part what we stumbled onto is something that we all live in now which is the free but advertising supported version of the internet right which was far from obvious in the mid 90s right it was far from obvious that that was the way that it would end up and there was a lot of you probably remember this there was a lot of enthusiasm for Micro payments and premium content as the driver and stuff like that, which we live now in a world of Facebook, Google, et cetera, et cetera, where you and I, as users, use the services free more or less. And somebody that service is charging somebody else to get our attention. That's what we found our way to. You know what I mean? Was we we could get there was a lot less friction in getting revenue growth that way than monetizing more directly through users. Yeah, it's funny too, because I mean, we've talked in this conversation
1: about the online event space is changing. And to me, one of the ironies of the internet is massively game changing thing. And at the end of the day, one of the biggest business models, maybe still the biggest business model is the exact same business model that worked in radio and worked in television.
2: Right? It really is. Yeah. And the twist is it started working differently with the advent of the social media companies where the ability to personalize and to use the algorithm to actually manipulate you more. I look back on some of the like commentary in the 70s and 80s about TV and how manipulative it was. All they were really trying to do was sell you Tide, right? Like, Yes, they were trying to manipulate you into buying Tide. But now (laughs) the level of manipulation is so much higher and personal. It's directly you and me individually. And so, boy, yeah, upping the ante, but in really a very familiar model.
1: Yeah, we've come a long way from splicing a picture of popcorn into a movie preview.
2: Isn't that so quaint? Like, just trying to sell popcorn, that's not so bad. It would be worse. Yeah. Trying to crash
1: all. Then you, you moved on. You did an, another startup after you yeah. were involved in selling GeoCities to Yahoo. So what was it like to go through a failed startup experience?
2: Oh, crazy, man. This was 1999. We raised $10 million in 90 days on a $40 million valuation. And we didn't have anything but a deck. Mm. So that's what 1999 was like. I don't still think we've gotten back to that kind of thing between, I mean, there's certainly been some little yeah. bubbles or bubble, semi-bubbles. But man, at that time, anybody who could say, I'm doing an internet thing, could raise money. And we were actually, the team that we had was pretty experienced in this area. So that was credible. But that was nuts. And, and we got a lot of attention and a lot of interest and the thing that we really, I really took out of that was you have to stay the course on stuff, right? Like getting something off the ground is hard. And if you're changing frequently, it's real hard. Like there's the idea of pivoting, but there's also right. the idea of constancy, right? Like you have to be committed to something and it's a strange balance. I find entrepreneurship is this strange balance between not too much of this and not too much of the opposite of that and you can't be ideological about, well, always grow or always don't grow. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, there's no way to say, be cautious on hiring people or the opposite being something like, if you see great talent, hire them and figure out how to use them later. Like those aren't always right or wrong, you know what yeah. I mean? Even though they're opposites, right? So sometimes if you try to apply like a principle of that kind dogmatically, you're going to go wrong some of the time. And so with that startup, the error that we made was just, too quick to modify our course because it didn't work right away. As Bart said to Homer on one episode of The Simpsons after he, I think it was the guitar, he started playing the guitar earlier in the episode and Homer said, what happened to the guitar? He was like, I wasn't good at it right away. So I quit, you know, <laughs> it, was like, it was like that, right? Like, of course you weren't. So it's that balance. And so we didn't do that very well. And despite raising the money and everything, we, I think a lot of us that weren't in charge of it kind of started going like, eh, I, I just don't, I don't think I can stick around for this. And so we sort of peeled off over time and th- then the three of us created Gold Star. Yeah, so how did you pick the ticketing right space of yeah. all things? Yeah, right, good question. A life-changing decision, but a good question now. We had seen a few things that were doing a similar, there was a lot of ferment happening mm. in that world at the time and things that were kind of going Similar direction to Gold Star, but this is 2001 when we started thinking about it. Very, very little of the things that had happened on the internet were actually touching the live event at that point. Most tickets were still sold on the phone at that time. Ticketmaster did have online ticketing, but it was minor. And in terms of marketing, what we saw was there's all these people out there that want to go to shows, and there's all these shows we learned about how shows don't sell out, like that's then true now. And so it just felt like, gosh, we've just spent the last three or four years learning to kind of mass customized marketing of all these different kinds of things to all these different kinds of people, and the internet is the perfect low cost tool for doing that. And so it just seemed like one of those industries that really needed some tools applied to it. And we weren't the only ones. StubHub was created around that time, which invented the secondary market. We really invented the third party sales channel for live entertainment. So there was a lot of that kind of thing happening. And we started with, I mean, a thousand dollars, you know, three of us put in a little bit of money and convinced a few of our friends from GeoCities and other places to help us put the site together. And then we just started calling venues and saying, Hey, we got this idea. You want to do it? It doesn't cost you anything and you might make some money from it. And some of them said, all right, it was such a novel concept at the time. And it took us about nine months or a year to get momentum behind that. it take a good little while for it to catch on. And then all of a sudden we had a nice viral uptake on, you know, the more shows we got, the more customers we got, the more customers we got, the more shows we got, and it kind of started building on itself.
1: It's a classic example of a network-based business, right? That everybody loves today.
2: Yep. That's right. And we somehow made it work. It was a, it's sort of like jolting the Frankenstein monster to life. You know, somehow you have to figure out how to do that, but it's, once it happens, it's great, but making it happen is hard.
1: Yeah, when you think about, you know, you talk about Ticketmaster selling tickets by phone. I remember living in Boston, trying to get tickets to a U2 show that was on St. Patrick's Day, calling Ticketmaster and ultimately getting my brother who lived in Chicago to call from Chicago because I had figured out that if you called in a, on a long distance circuit, you would come in to the queue differently. And so that was how screwed up it was back then. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's come a long way since those days.
2: But you remember the uh, lines outside record stores for tickets? Yeah, <laughs> that was another yeah. fun, fun part of being a kid in the when and yeah. when there were record stores. Yeah, right. Yeah, at least yeah. Were right.
1: So what were some of the things when you look back on your early days, you and your your partners? What were the things you got right, and what were the things you got wrong as early entrepreneurs? We got right.
2: The idea that it was more important to get good at what we did than to get big fast, really understanding what drove sales for shows, what it took to get customers that were going to buy stuff rather than just sign up for something. And laying down, I guess, kind of a core, I mean, philosophy is not quite the right word, but like an operating system for how to do what we did. We took a long time and we were very patient with that and it was hard, but it worked. And I would say the thing that we did wrong was almost a continuation of that, which is to say we spent too long in that phase. We were too cautious about do we know enough to step on the gas here, use some capital, that kind of thing. We probably stayed in that phase a little too long. So mm-hmm. once we had leverage, we should have like gone for it more. So it took us longer to get to kind of the first five, 10 million in revenue or whatever than it should have, because we were like, well, you know, I don't know, we, we were we were being too cautious. You know, it was part of that was the we were running a playbook that for a while was basically everything that our previous company did, just put don't in front of that, those things. And, and that would be a pretty good plan. We'd start, I think we sort of held onto that a little too long, you know what I mean? Of the cautious, the cautious part of that. Don't take $10 million and, and spend it all in a year, that kind of thing. That's still not a great idea. But I mean, like, we were cautious in a prudent way, and then we were too cautious. So give us one point and take one point away.
1: So you teach entrepreneurship at USC, right? As an think, adjunct professor. Yeah. So what's your approach for teaching your students the ins uh, and outs of an on- of entrepreneurship?
2: I've done this twice and I co-teach with the head of the uh, entrepreneurship program, Elisa Grossman, who's a great teacher. So she's a great teacher and really knows how to help structure it. But our approach is really to be as practical as possible. So we try to use real world entrepreneurs when we can, real world stories and yeah. give people, it's a little bit like a case Methodology. I have a format that I use called the Mastermind methodology, where I bring a real entrepreneur who has a real problem or decision. We try to get the students immersed in that problem and the company and everything, and then they work through questions at a deeper and deeper level, and then they come to the entrepreneur with actual recommendations on the specific problem, which is super helpful for the entrepreneur. I mean, it's really mm-hmm. interesting because you get a group of people that really don't know the problem, but right. That's why it's called a mastermind because you put 50 or 60 people together. And these are, in my case, they're EMBAs, right? So they're mid-career executives. So they have right. knowledge. And so the things they think of are often big leaps forward for the entrepreneur or an acceleration of the entrepreneur's thinking over the course of a few hours that might have taken months or maybe never because they're just looking at it so differently. And sometimes they're not great ideas, but sometimes they are great ideas or they're ideas that open up a door that needs to be opened up for the entrepreneur. So That's one of the methods that I think works really well is that mastermind format. And people tend to like it because it's not theoretical. It has a lot of theoretical benefit because as I say, there's really only five or six problems in entrepreneurship and they recur in different forms all the time. So if you're an entrepreneur sitting in that classroom, you say, oh, this is exactly like my thing, even though you're in a completely different industry. So kind of fascinating. That's the main thing is we try to uh, immerse in reality as much as possible. Come back to Stellar. I know
1: we're going to run out of time soon. So come back to Stellar. Just, you talked earlier about culture and Noah's. What's the kind of culture that you try to create within Stellar as, as
2: the guy running it today? Yeah, well, it's so interesting because the challenge now is that you're creating culture in a distributed team, which yeah. Stellar is 100% distributed. It's harder than if you have everybody in a room or if you have everybody in two rooms, even, you know, two offices or something like that. I think the culture of Stellar is a bit of a continuation of the culture of Goldstar. And the culture of Goldstar was really about, there was a lot about care. We used to talk about the different dimensions of Goldstar's culture. One was this courage and care, the two-sided nature of courage and care, that you have to bring courage and care, potentially different amounts to a given situation. We talked about a spirit of basically going all out for the stakeholders in the business, meaning in our case, it was the organizations that we worked with and the customers we wanted to make it easy we wanted them to be successful and to, for the, to be easy for them to be successful so yeah. that spirit of like we're going to solve the problems that people have we talked a lot about working as a single big team and that meant that everybody respects each other's work i think in an organization with a bunch of different functions a lot of times people forget that everybody's job is very hard and so we would do things like give people cross training or whatever or create cross functional teams so that you could be reminded how hard it was to do customer service or how hard it was to be an engineer or how hard it was to do the venue relations work that kind of thing and then we also had a culture of of what we called unicorns don't chase themselves where in order to achieve big things you have to very deliberately go and get them and it's always easy to go and catch squirrels or however you want to compare it but and so I think that was, we were there long enough that Star's culture got articulated really well. You know what I mean? Stellar's new. And I often feel, I always feel as CEO that I cannot sit in my desk, sit at my desk and declare what the culture is. I can try to influence it. But if I say our culture is this and people go like, hell it is, then it's bullshit what I'm saying, right? Like, it's just not true. So partly with Stellar, we're kind of an emerging culture because we're so new, you know, as an independent company, we're not even a year old. But I think what we try to instill is some of the same respect for each other's work and the same commitment to people's success. And so now it's the clients of ours that are doing these shows. We want them to be massively successful. And we're committed, committed to that part of it. And I think in addition to that, what's new in the stellar culture is we're very much innovators in the industry. Our job is to push the live entertainment industry in some directions that it needs to go. Yep, but not yep. everybody's prepared to. So we have to do that sort of gentle pushing and nudging, and have good explanations for this. Part of why I wrote the book because yeah. if you want me to explicate what I think should happen, I wrote a book about it. You know what I mean? Like, right, I've right. given this a lot of very organized thought, and so that's part of it. Is we have to be the innovators, we have to be agitators, and we have to respect each other as always, and we also have to be committed to the success of the customers. That we have. So. I'd like to think that's what our culture is like. I mean, you know, it's a new company. And so culture emerges, you know, I used to say at Gold Star, the stuff that we talked about in our culture program was 80% what we are and 20% what we want to be. You want to have that aspirational thing, but if you flipped it on its head and said, well, it's 20% what we are and 80% what we want to be, people would recognize it as being like just corporate jib jab, just hot air. So part of it is like, hey, culture is you are what you do, I think is what Horowitz said, right? Like you are what you do, you know, and right. so is as does is as, as it does. So I think that's the truth about culture. And I think there's a lot of ways for cultures to be successful. I remember reading years ago about them. This is years ago, but the culture at Philip Morris was people loved smoking. They believed in freedom. And so they would all, you know, you walk into any conference room and Philip Morris and there's cigarettes all over the tape, smoke up, you know? And I, I remember thinking right. like, not for me, but like, on some level, I kind of admire that they're committed to this crazy, terrible thing they do. You know, yeah. there's there's a culture there that God help us. But there's a lot of different ways for culture to have yeah. a form and to and to have an impact. And hopefully, smoking is not one that many companies use as the centerpiece of it. But uh, probably more. Yeah, I hope not. Again, you can't declare culture by fiat, and you can't make culture a, w- a wish list. You know, yeah. it has to be based in some reality. And generally speaking the people who run the company either live it or they don't, Yeah, you know, either they live it or they don't.
1: Yeah. Any final thoughts you want to share? Any advice you want to give
2: before we break? I would love to read my book if you're interested in learning about how to do online events. It's my first time as a a published author. So I'm super excited to get feedback and I hope that there are people out there listening who want to become great online event creators and my book can help you.
1: Great. All right. Well, Hey, thanks for making time. It's good to uh, get
2: to know you a bit
1: and what you're doing in your business and I look forward to seeing how the online event continues to unfold. So, Excellent. Uh, Thanks, Jim. I appreciate it. Yeah. Have a good day, Jim. It was great having Jim on the show today and hearing a little bit about the online event space and how he and his firm are trying to shape it. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit Pathwise.io. If you'd like more regular insights, you can become a Pathwise member. Basic membership is free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter or follow Pathwise on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thank you. Have a great day.
0: Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at PathWise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.